So we come now to this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is once more going to be interacting with the Pharisees. Now, it's important for us to understand the passage. We, we have to look at the long-term interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus. Remember that the Pharisees believe that they are the ones that hold the truth. They put themselves forward as the superior and ultimate authority between God and men. They live in a theocracy. They live in a day and age in which the very idea on anyone's part to separate religion from government would just be crazy. And everyone, the Romans had all kinds of gods. The Greeks had all kinds of gods. The Babylonians had gods. The Egyptians had gods. I mean, there wasn't any country out there that didn't have their god or multiple gods. And so the very idea that you somehow would have a nation without a god was, no one would even think that. That was just beyond. So each country had those folks who were, in theory, the experts on the law. Well, the scribes were the experts in the law, and the Pharisees were the ones who lived out the law within the nation of Israel. So when John the Baptist arises and appears on the scene, they see themselves, the scribes and Pharisees, as the ones who hold the truth about the covenant of Moses, what we would term the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. They saw themselves as the arbitrators of that, the authorities. They were the ones who could determine whether or not you were in a right relationship between the God of Moses and yourself. How would you know? Well, you had to go to them and they would tell you. Well, suddenly John the Baptist arises and he stands up and says, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king himself is at the door. Any moment now, the Messiah is going to arrive, one whose shoelaces I'm not even worthy to untie. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they understand their history. They certainly know the Old Testament quite well. They study it all the time. The idea of a prophet of arising and standing up and speaking in the name of God is not foreign to them. It's not like nothing like that could ever happen. I mean, of course, things like that happen. They can read their Old Testament and see that that occurs. The question is, is John one of those guys? That's the question. And so they kind of stand back. They are standoffish to the presentation of John. Many people come, repent as John preaches. Turn and say, you know what? We have not been leading lives that were the Messiah to arrive this very day and place our lives in, a, in judgment. We might not do so well at that. So we better repent, and we do. And we go down into the waters of baptism in the Jordan River where John is preaching, and we get baptized, but not the Pharisees, not the scribes. They kind of just stand back like we haven't really made our mind up just yet as to what we think about this John guy. And, of course, John goes after them, calls them a bunch of snakes and vipers, and says to them, well, who in the world warned you guys to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, there is wrath coming, by the way, and since you're not listening to me, exactly who are you listening to? They don't really like that, as you can imagine. And then 
of course, along comes Jesus, and he is baptized by John and begins his ministry. And now we come up with this, again, complex relationship between this person and the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus, everywhere he goes, gathers huge crowds. He is able to heal people. He is able to do phenomenal miracles. He stands up and preaches from the Old Testament and speaks words that people are like, we've never heard anyone present the Old Testament like this. This is astounding. The very Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus gets up and says, you have heard it said, and then goes into whatever it was they'd heard said. But I say to you, and proceeds to give them the spirit of the law. It's not just a matter of whether or not you commit adultery. The question is, are you an adulterer in your heart? Do you look at women who are not your spouse and lust after them? Because if you do, well, you're guilty of adultery. Do you look at things that aren't yours and say, wow, wouldn't I love to have that? Well, you're guilty of covetousness. You say, okay, I wouldn't actually murder my neighbor, but I'm here to tell you, I get the feeling that if I could get away with it, <clears throat> I just might. Okay, if that's what you're thinking, well, then you are a murderer. Even though you don't have the nerve to do it, your heart is filled with it. Now, what are the scribes and Pharisees going to do? They are left, once again, the same thing with John, they are left in a position where, all right, we are the ones who hold what we believe to be the truth about the Mosaic Covenant. So we owe it to the people. We've got to at least listen to John. We've got to at least listen to Jesus. We've got to see if we can, because, well, one, we can't ignore them. You will recall, Jesus will eventually, we'll get to the passage where Jesus will ask them a question and and they say to him, on what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. The baptism of John, was it of God or men? Oh, they get together, you know, get a little huddled. They're like, you know, if we say it's of God, he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you get baptized? And if we say it's of men, oh, we're going to be in trouble because everyone believes John is a prophet. So they come back to Jesus and they're like, well, wait, we can't answer that question. Well, of course you can't answer that question. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you under what authority I am presenting this truth. Of course, of course it's the same authority as John. I mean, that's part of the answer to that. So they can't ignore Jesus, but how do they react to him? And importantly, how does Jesus react to them? These things are very instructive for us. In case you hadn't noticed, we are living in a world which is growing increasingly, particularly our own nation, which prior, five years ago, you'd have said, well, you know, I mean, Christianity, we're coming a little under attack, but uh, not so much anymore. Now you're, you're just wondering when we're going to have some Supreme Court decision that's going to come down and decide that sharing the gospel is hate speech. And we're just, you're just kind of looking at it like, okay, when is that going to happen? Surely any time now. And how are we going to react to that? What are we going to say about that? How are we going to maintain our testimony as Christians and deal with that kind of a choice? This passage is going to give us insight about how to do that. What we're going to look at here is the interaction of Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes, which have at this point, by this passage, not just a couple of chapters ago, remember, 
Jesus went into one of the Pharisees' homes and sat down and ate a meal with them. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but you may recall that they had a guy with dropsy sitting in front of him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, not before he embarrasses them all, and then proceeds to teach the truth of them all. And they're not real happy about that. They don't really like how Jesus does this. That was the last meal that Jesus ever got invited to. That wasn't that long ago. Uh, and particularly in, in the New Testament, and particularly in the life of Jesus, that was just a few months back. They were still kind of listening, still kind of hearing, still kind of inviting him, still trying to get a bead on exactly who he was. Okay, now we come to this passage. Luke chapter 16. Starting at verse 14, uh, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all the things that Jesus had just got done saying, and they are scoffing at him. This is now a major turn in the relationship between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus. They're not politely listening. They're not even just hostile listening. They're literally scoffing. This is showing contempt. This is stronger even than mockery. This is just, you'd have to be a fool to listen to this guy. This is total rejection of the message of Jesus. They have crossed a line now. They have gone over a line in which they are no longer just kind of the audience that is listening, radiating a level of hostility. They have moved past that to literally scoffing at Jesus and what he's saying. They scorn, just total open ridicule now of what Jesus has to say. What did Jesus say? What is their problem here? I mean, exactly what is going on? Well, Jesus has said to them, the previous passage, he, we preached it last week, but let me read it for you. Remember, he said, he was faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little is going to be unrighteous in much. So if you haven't been faithful in the things which are uh, if you have not been faithful in the use of the unrighteous wealth, which is the money of this world, who will entrust the true riches to you, the wealth of the next world? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, which, by the way, is everything God has given us in this world, who's going to give you what's your own? I mean, how much do you think God is going to entrust to you to the next world if you weren't a good steward of what you got in this world? No man can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will... Be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And it was at that moment, the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, said, okay, that's it. We're done. We are done with this guy. Uh, we, we know God. And what we know about God is that God loves rich people. That's basically what they're saying. They have a theology, a wrong theology, by the way, but they believe that their theology gives them the authority to completely oppose the very Son of God. If you stop and think about it, the people who often oppose the truth about God 
are the people who have an alternative truth. The most aggressive enemies to Christianity are often other religions. Jesus speaks to his nation. Is it the immoral people who are opposing him? No. Is it the tax collectors who are opposing him? No. Who's opposing him? The other religious people. They have a system. They have a worldview. They have put together this, this massive construction of thought, which they have built over time, which has convinced them that the only way to have a right relationship with God is to do all of the things which they say you need to do. It is thought through. It is systematic. It is, it is one of those things that they are convinced to the core of their being that they are right. Criminals, tax collectors, immoral people, they may not want to hear the gospel either. They may have their own reasons for not really wanting to hear, but they at least have a sense of a little bit of insecurity. They may not display it to you, but the fact is if there's a message that tells them how to be sure that they can be right with God and have their sins all forgiven and, and actually maybe make their way to heaven, you know, even some of the most wicked people out there might actually be interested in hearing that message. They may never really show that to you, but they have a level of uncertainty. Who doesn't want to hear that message? Well, people who believe that they already have that message. People who believe that by their good works and by who they are and the methods which they have put together uh, have already answered that question and any other answer than their answer is a threat to them. That is the scribes and Pharisees. Their way of salvation, which they believe they find in the old covenant, it's, they're completely wrong, by the way, under the old covenant, you still got saved by the grace of God. You still got saved by faith in the coming sacrifice of the Messiah on their behalf. But the self-righteous, they don't have any uncertainty. They're not sitting around going to bed at night going, man, I sure hope I don't die tonight because if I, if I wake up standing before God, that is not going to go well. They don't think that at all. They are convinced that they are right. They have a competing system to the true system. So they're perfectly willing to take on Jesus. They're perfectly willing to scoff at what he says, to literally mock and ridicule him. Oh, Jesus, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. How can they say that? How can you stand here in front of the very son of God and act like this? Well, they can because they believe they're right. They don't think they need to repent. They think Jesus needs to repent. So their method of salvation is works. And so when Jesus gets up and says, actually, we're all sinners, and the method of salvation is to rely on the grace of God, they completely reject that. So we look at the, look at the passage here, and we're going to just see what we can do to look at, and this may go to next week too. See what we can do to look at here, what are some of the things that the Pharisees hold to from this passage that have so given them this, what they think a bulwark to literally oppose the truth of God? So verses 14 and 15. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. 
God or is your heart? For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So from this passage, what did they think? Well, they thought for sure that they had figured out God's relationship to money. And what they thought they had figured out was that if you're rich, then you clearly have the blessing of God in your life. Which was easy for them to assume because, well, they were rich. So they just put together that if you have money, then you have the blessing of God. And if you have the blessing of God, well, then you must be right. And so whatever you believe must be the right thing to believe. And so they counted on their money and their wealth and their prominence to give them this foundation to stand on in which they could oppose what Jesus said. Because we all know what Jesus said, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is speaking to those who are poor. Jesus is speaking to those who are sinners. And they hate him for it. How dare he go over and talk to those sinners? Throughout church history, they, this is, continues on. There have been any number of people who have had religion who believe that because they are wealthy, because they have all kinds of riches, you can turn on the TV or get on the internet to this very day, and you could have people stand up and try to tell you that because they have faith and because they believe in God, they drive in limos, and as they talk to you, they've got gold chains hanging all over everywhere and rings all over their fingers, and, and, and they'll just tell you that they're not ashamed of any of that because this is all God's blessing on their life, and why have you just had enough faith to put more on the plate, why you too could be rich. Oh. Lord, save us from those who would make merchandise of the saints. What's also interesting is that you can flip it completely around and you can also discover that there are a group of people who believe that if you make yourself poor and miserable, that will make you right with God. Kind of interesting. Both those sides are out there. There are groups of people who create communes or they get monasteries and they go live in them. And while they're living in them, they sleep in cold rooms on hard beds with a thin blanket and maybe get themselves woke up every hour to get up and pray and to get on their knees and to just, just make themselves filled with misery just to show how dedicated to God they are. Because surely misery will get you closer to God. Kind of interesting, but it creates a system of thought. There seems to be a, some wisdom to this. It's like, well, they're dedicated. Look how dedicated they are to God. Look at the sacrifices they're willing to make on behalf of God. Surely they must be godly people. They've got to be saints. Look at them. They're praying every hour on the hour. And the Bible says pray it without ceasing, right? So surely these must be godly people. And so that becomes a system of thought as well. We have in our society, in case you have not yet awoken to this, and I use that word deliberately, we have a group of people in our society who also are putting forward a view in which there is a certain secret hidden knowledge which makes you more holy or righteous or just. Maybe we should pick the word just. There is this notion that if you 
really enter into this secret relationship with God, then you can become enlightened through suffering or through whatever it is, the teaching. In the first century, into the second and third century, this idea was referred to as Gnosticism. Hidden knowledge. First uh, John was probably written to combat this as if it was entering into the church. And it's this idea that there's a deeper life. There's a deeper Christianity. There's a deeper truth. And it's this hidden truth that only the select few are actually exposed to. Uh, these are the mystery religions. And this idea that if you become one of the initiates into this mystery, then you can become enlightened. You can become one of the illuminated ones. You, you can have your eyes open to the real truth, the, the hidden truth. And you can enter into the ranks of those who are enlightened. This is not new. Uh, this, has, this has plagued the church since the first century. It has plagued sometimes society, depending on whether or not they have the strength to actually um, enter into a, a dialogue with the whole society. At its core, this teaching is the teaching that Satan gave Eve. What is, what is the thing that Satan tells Eve that causes her to want to eat the fruit? God has deliberately, I mean, God couldn't have been more clear. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet Satan comes to her and says, hey, look, let me give you, let me give you the hidden knowledge. Let me tell you what God isn't telling you. God is holding out on you. God knows that the moment you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't need God anymore. You can become like a God. You will be able to tell what's right and what's wrong all your own without the constraints of God's view on what's right and wrong. You know, that, that, that's hidden knowledge. That's kind of heady stuff, right? We kind of like that. Woo, can I get in on that? You're kidding me. I can actually be a person who has knowledge with which, if I have this knowledge, I can confront God himself. You can't, by the way, but that's the lie. And if you look at the scribes and Pharisees, right, they fall for this lie. They think that they can stand there and literally argue with the very Son of God standing in their midst. How can you, how can you think that? Well, because you've bought into a lie. You've corrupted the scriptures such that you think you now have the truth. And the Pharisees, boy, did they think they had the truth. They thought that they really had this system of thought in which even when Jesus shows up and says, you can't love God and money, you're going to have to pick. You're going to have to choose whether you want to be part of this world or part of God's world, the next one. Whether you're going to be heavenly minded or earthly minded, you've got to choose. You cannot serve God and serve money. And they're like, you're wrong. You're wrong. We have a system of thought in which we know we are right. In fact, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You guys think that you have this system that is going to make you just and right and righteous in the sight of men. That's your problem. Your problem is that you're not measuring yourself up to the righteousness of God. You're just measuring yourself against each other. Think about this. They honestly believe that the day of judgment was going to be a 
like a race. And the race was who can keep all of the laws and traditions that they have the best. Those folks will receive the blessing of God. They will enter into the eternal bliss of God. And all the others won't. Paul will say to them, you not knowing the righteousness of God correctly, you didn't understand that correctly, you set out to establish your own righteousness and refuse to subject yourself to the righteousness which is of God. So for them, salvation was keeping the law. The winner of the race of life was that one which best kept what they thought was the law of God. Now let me take just a second here and help, help you think about what they meant by that. Now, you might think, well, they're talking about, you know, the Ten Commandments, right? The golden rule. Um, you know. Oh, oh, no. That wasn't what they were talking about. The scribes and Pharisees, and the reason that there were scribes, was they didn't just believe in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Oh, they believed in that. But on top of that, they had developed an oral tradition, which was a body of knowledge that came from actually adjudicating the law of Moses to particular specific situations. And so in order to really understand the law of Moses, in order to really understand the Pentateuch, you actually needed to understand this oral law, which is what they called it. So you've got the written law, which is the Pentateuch, and then you've got the oral law. And the oral law was actually called, they, they finally got around to about the second century, they finally wrote it down, and they called it the Mishnah. They actually had a name for it. And the oral law, the Mishnah, was all of the, all of the oral traditions that they had by which they correctly interpreted the Pentateuch. You're like, well, okay, how bad was the Mishnah? Okay, the Mishnah was so bad so difficult to understand, so arcane, that when they finally wrote it down, they had to write a commentary on how to understand the Mishnah. And they called that the Gemara, the completion. Okay, you're, you're like, wait a minute, what? So, okay, so we got the law of Moses, which I'm thinking when we talk about what the scribes and Pharisees are holding the law of Moses. Oh, no, they're not just holding the law of Moses. They're holding to this entire oral tradition of 1,000 years, give or take, maybe 1,500 years of oral tradition. And when they finally get down to writing it out, it is so complex and so convoluted and so twisted around that they end up writing an entire commentary on the commentary, which is what that amounts to. And when you roll that all together, by the way, that's actually called the Talmud. Talmud is a fairly thick book. It contains not just the Pentateuch, it also contains the Mishnah, and then it also contains the Gemara, and there's two parts. Yeah, you, you don't want me to keep going. It just gets more and more and more. Okay, that's why you have the scribes. That's why you have the legal scholars. You need them. The only way to understand this whole crazy thing that they've put together, and, and it's all put together for the specific purpose of allowing you, apart from the Spirit of God, to actually somehow supposedly keep the law. Of course, they did not succeed at that. They, they didn't love their neighbor. I mean, Jesus just blows them to smithereens with, with the Good Samaritan, right? You just need to throw the Good Samaritan out there and it will show you that you guys don't love your neighbor. 
you guys have completely failed in your attempts. But they didn't think that. What they thought was that, in fact, if you talk to observant Jews to this very day, they will say that you've got to study the entire Talmud and kind of really get that all together to become an observant Jew because the only way you're going to please God is if you can actually keep the law of God. Um, that's why, by the way, when Jesus gets up and gives the Sermon on the Mount and doesn't quote rabbi this and rabbi that and doesn't refer to this oral tradition here and that oral tradition there, he just gets up and says, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you, this is why when he gets done, they're just astounded. Like, who is this guy? This guy speaks with authority. And he didn't quote any other of all of the rabbis that why we spend literally lifetimes trying to memorize what the other rabbis said so that we carry some weight and gravitas and authority because, well, we know all of the oral tradition. Jesus dispenses with it all and just gets up and says, I say to you. And what Jesus says is the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, it's not a hidden book. It's not some secret book. It's not like, it's not like you've got a, you, you need forever to understand this thing. It's not like you need the Mishnah to understand it. It's not like you need all of this oral tradition. In fact, you guys with your oral traditions have so perverted the law of Moses that you're not even doing what the law of Moses says anymore. And he tells them that on any number of occasions. And we'll tell them that in this passage, provided we ever get to it this morning, maybe next week, before we get to what he actually says to them. They have perverted the word of God and have made it inaccessible. They have basically put forward the idea here that the Old Testament is unknowable except to the initiated, which of course was them. They held the secret knowledge. They had the secret handshake. They had what the common person did not have. They actually understood the true way to worship God, which is why when Jesus shows up and makes it very clear, and he, remember he just gave three clear par parables. Remember, they, they hated the fact that Jesus hung around with the sinners. And so Jesus tells them about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, remember? And those three things were as plain as they could be and made it as clear as anyone could make it that God rejoices when sinners repent. Oh no, not them. They were represented by the elder brother. And he wasn't going to repent whatsoever. In fact, he was pretty upset that his younger brother repented. So why? Well, because they believe they have the hidden truth. They believe we hold the keys to the kingdom. We're the ones that are going to tell people whether or not they're serving God. Not this guy. Not Jesus. In fact, we now scorn him. Mock him. We now are ridiculing him. Jesus must respond to them because if you go to the average Israelite and you say, all right, how do you maintain a right relationship with God? They're going to be like, well, I don't know. You have to go talk to the Pharisees or the scribes. I mean, those are the guys that know. So, and I don't, I don't know whether I'm really going to do very good with God or not because I sure can't do what those guys do. I mean, they are just in a whole nother plane. They've got a whole nother set of knowledge and I, and I, I got to go fishing. You know, I got to go cast the net. This is taking the whole day here. Huh? In fact, sometimes we're out all night. I don't. I mean, I go to synagogue on Saturday, but, you know, I'm no expert in the law. Those guys are the experts. So Jesus has to look at people and say, hey, it's not that complicated. And when Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees who have just got done ridiculing him, this is not, this is not a ego contest here. Jesus is not upset in the sense of, hey, how dare you insult me? Jesus is not going to respond to them at that level, but he is going to respond to them. 
Jesus does speak to them. They have just got done ridiculing him. They have just got done scorning him. Jesus replies. Jesus doesn't just go slink away. Jesus doesn't say, well, I don't want to offend anybody, you know. I mean, after all. Uh, No, the fact is, they're going to meet Jesus again. He's going to be sitting on a great white throne, and they're going to be brought before him, and they're going to rehab this conversation. And I suspect, by the way, we'll, we'll see that by the time we get through chapter 16, I suspect that they will be of the same opinion. I don't, they may be forced to bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but they'll be cast into hell with, with gnashing of teeth and declaring God wrong. Won't help them any. They'll, they'll still be cast headlong in there, but they don't. They didn't repent before. They won't repent after either. But that's, that's another sermon. It's in chapter 16, though, so there's hope that we might actually get there eventually. So Jesus speaks to them, and he doesn't simply let them get away with their error. Jesus wants them to hear the truth. Even though they're scorning him and ridiculing him, perhaps if he one more time gives them the truth, even though they're sneering, um, if they're ever going to get saved, if the gospel is ever going to sink in, they are going to have to hear the truth. We have come to the place in case you have not noticed. And we've come to the place in America and in much of American Christianity where we've got the Ten Commandments and then we've got the 11th Commandment. And the 11th Commandment is this. You need to be nice. Be nice. Where does this come from? Well, we adopted a kind of uh, marketing mentality in the church in which we may not have specifically used that term, but we might have, where we see Christianity as kind of a product. And we're trying to sell the gospel. And we're trying to reach the world. And we all know how this is supposed to work. So if you want to build up a good audience, if you want to sell a product, well, what you do is you go out and you survey people and you talk to them and you ask them what they want and you find out what they want. And whatever it is they want, well, that's what you give them. Do people like sermons that have jokes in them? Hire a comedian. Do you want shorter sermons? Well, shorten that sermon up. Uh, What is it people want? Whatever they want, give it to them. And whatever you do, don't offend anybody. Be nice. If you want the world to come into your church and hear the truth of what God has to say, you're going to have to be nice about it. Don't offend anybody. And stop talking about hell, will you? Saying that word. Next thing you know, you'll be talking about blood. Yeah, what do you know? Actually, you might be. Now, we need to speak truth. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. And they mock him. They treat him with ridicule and scorn. They're lovers of money. And as they listen to what Jesus has to say, they scoff at him, sneer at him. So what does Jesus do? Tell a joke to break the tension? 
you say, well, you know, guys, I mean, this is just my opinion. You guys have your opinion. And I mean, we all know there's lots of opinions. And, you know, heaven is like a mountaintop and there's many roads. So, I mean, if you don't really want my road, you can take your road. And, and uh, you know, what works for me may not work for you. But, you know, is that what Jesus does? Is that the response of Jesus? Is that how he goes about this? You know, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. And, well, I guess we'll just have to wait till the end to see who's actually true, you know. Um, is that how we're supposed to react when people begin to oppose the gospel? When people begin to oppose the truth of what the word of God says? When people come to us and try to tell us men are women and women are men, are we supposed to just say, well, I don't want to offend anybody? Or do we say, you know, actually, I've read the Bible and God created the worlds and he created the heavens and earth and he created the male and female. That's how he created them. And if someone is a, clearly a male and is confused about whether or not they're a male, we need to have compassion on them and we need to be kind to them. But the kindest, most compassionate thing we can do for them is help them understand God's truth because what matters is what God thinks. Truth is not malleable. You don't just get to mold and conform it to whatever worldview you'd happen to have. There's a day of judgment coming, and you will stand before God, and you will give an account. And if God created you to be a man, you are going to give an account as a man before God. And if he created you to be a woman, you're going to give an account as a woman before God. And if you defy the creation of God and determine that even God isn't going to tell you what your gender is, you're going to give an account to God for that. And so out of love and compassion and concern, let me warn you that you may not want to head down the road of open rebellion to the very creation of God in your life. It's going to be a tough road to go down. And you're going to be very unhappy when you stand before God and give an account. Let me explain to you how God would be more than happy to forgive you and to start you in a new life and to renew your mind and to help you reconcile yourself to the truth of who God is. That's what we're called to do. That's what we must do. That's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. That's how this works. We are being confronted. Even now, there is a teaching going on. Whether you've actually been exposed to it yet or not, it's coming. There is a view that is working its way into the church, uh, into society at every level. It is critical race theory and intersectionality. If you're not familiar with those terms, you need to be. You're going to have to decide what you think about them. They're not going away and they're not leaving us alone. Basically, the teaching is a Gnostic teaching. It is the idea that if you are poor, if you are raised oppressed, if you are a person of color, if you are a person who perhaps is transgender or is homosexual, or if you are a person who is in any way outside of what would be considered thus far the norms of society, that that endows you with a moral superiority and a hidden knowledge that those who are white, who are of a Western Christian orientation, 
cannot know. Not, not that you just can't learn it, you can't possibly know it. And that the entire Western civilization, as it has been built, has been built for the benefit of those who are white to oppress those who aren't. So those who aren't white have a hidden and superior knowledge of justice. And we, by the way, if you fall into that category, are by default a racist and you just dispense injustice with every word you speak. You would think that we would be able to address that with a little more clarity. Uh, we don't. We're watching this make inroads into the church of God. Everyone is a sinner. That's the biblical reality. Every single one of us is born with a corrupt and deceitful heart. And God is willing to forgive us all. And God doesn't really care what color you're, whether you're a person of color or whether you're, or you're white as an albino. God doesn't care. That's not what matters. It's not the color of your skin. It's the condition of your heart. And the fact is, everyone's heart is filled with sin. And everyone can receive forgiveness. And there's not some hidden knowledge. There's not some hidden truth. The gospel is open. The forgiveness of God is open. And we had better be prepared because it's coming. Get ready if you are white to be accused of being a racist. Get ready. It's coming. There, it's just more and more and more openly being done in our society. And you better have the gospel at ready. Be ready to preach the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the redemption that is available in God. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for reason of the hope that is within you. Jesus speaks to those who oppose him every time. Jesus does not let the Pharisees get away with their wrong accusation. They're sneering at him. They're speaking to him with contempt. They're scoffing at him and trying to laugh him off. Oh, no, he comes right back at them. He doesn't go away. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't stay quiet. He speaks with love. He speaks with compassion. But he speaks truth. He looks right at him and says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of God, in the sight of men. But God knows your heart. That's about as confrontational as you can get. I don't, I don't think Jesus speaks that with any anger. I don't, I don't think he's red in the face. I don't think he's shaking his fist. I, don't, I think he just says it. It's like, guys, you know, you are lovers of money. And you justify or try to justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your heart. And next week, we'll go through and he will show them plainly that their heart is not right before God. When you are confronted, and you will be, be kind, be compassionate, and speak the truth. Speak the truth about the forgiveness that's available in God. Speak truth that there is redemption and that God's justice is justice. Let's pray. Lord, we need your word and your wisdom and your spirit. We do want to effectively 
preach the gospel. And it would be nice, of course, if we got a positive response. But the reality is, oftentimes, there are those who oppose us. There were those who opposed you, the very Son of God, as you came here in human flesh and declared the truth perfectly. They still opposed you. They still rejected. And so, Lord, may we not allow ourselves to simply be quiet on the off chance maybe we'll make a mistake and people won't like us. The fact is, we make, make no mistakes and speak the clear truth and have people absolutely hate us. May we speak it anyway. Give us love for our fellow man. They are buying the lies of the evil one. May we seek to pull them out of the fire, to rescue them, and to care for them like you care for this world, shedding your own blood to offer them redemption. May we carry that message forth with faithfulness, truthfulness, and compassion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.